The first of my posts was a focused summary of Part 6, Chapters 2 and 3. When Porfiry speaks, it is at first to make very casual conversation about his addiction to cigarettes and the doctor's advice to give them up. Raskolnikov immediately concludes that he is up to his professional tricks again. Porfiry mentions that he had been to see Raskolnikov before, and, finding him not at home and the door wide open, went in and looked around. Seeing Raskolnikov's gloomy expression, he pats him on the knee and says with a smile that he has come because he owes him an explanation. But the smile changes to a careworn expression with a touch of sadness. He declares that he has acted unfairly to Raskolnikov, and that their behavior when they last met was ungentlemanly and indecorous. He says that he has decided that openness is better between them. He is grateful that Nikolai put a stop to the suspicions and admits that at the time he was firmly convinced. He was counting on Raskolnikov's temperament to betray him, believing that he would lose patience, blurt out his story, and give Porfiry the tangible evidence he needed. Raskolnikov wonders what Porfiry is after now, and whether he truly does believe him to be innocent. Porfiry says he has come to explain the whole misunderstanding, and to apologize for the suffering he has caused Raskolnikov in his wounded pride. He calls him a man of noble character, and says he was attracted by him from the first, emphasizing again that he is speaking sincerely. At the idea that Porfiry might believe him innocent, Raskolnikov feels a rush of renewed alarm. Porfiry recounts some of the evidence that prompted his suspicions—the rumors, the old woman's notes on the pledges, and Raskolnikov's article on crime. He praises the article for its sincerity and daring, but he adds that such essays, composed with throbbing heart in the heat of youth, are dangerous. He says he can hardly be blamed for having been carried away by notions, assuring Raskolnikov that it wasn't from malice. But, he says, a hundred suspicions don't make a proof. He confesses that he searched Raskolnikov's apartment, that he used Razumihin to get information, and that he felt an eagerness for Raskolnikov to come, looking forward to him as a formidable opponent. And then he did. He recounts how Raskolnikov deliberately came in laughing, how Raskolnikov made the same comment to both him and Zamyatov about hiding the objects under a stone, how he rang the bell of the old woman's apartment, and how he made no reply when a workman accused him to his face of murder. Given all this evidence, too, he says, it is no wonder he played such pranks on Raskolnikov. And then came the entry of Nikolai like a thunderbolt. But, he says, he didn't believe the thunderbolt. Raskolnikov tells him that Razumihin had said just then that Porfiry did believe Nikolai, and even as he says it, he is afraid to believe it. Porfiry dismisses Razumihin as irrelevant, and he returns to his account of Nikolai. He says that he regards Nikolai as a child, innocent and responsive to influence. He has a good heart, sings and dances, and laughs till he cries. 
Petersburg has had a great effect on him, and he sometimes drinks himself senseless. He is an old believer, who studied under a spiritual elder and read himself crazy. He stole, persuading himself that he wasn't stealing if he picked it up. Then, Porfiry says, he was terrified at the very thought of a trial, and tried to hang himself. In prison, he recalled the words of the venerable elder and took it upon himself to suffer. Porfiry is convinced that he now means to take his suffering, but that he won't hold out. In time, he will take his words back. No, he says, this has nothing to do with Nikolai. This is the story of bookish dreams, of a heart unhinged by theories, of a criminal whose legs shook as he went to the crime. He murdered two people for a theory, couldn't take the spoils, and had to go back to the empty lodging, delirious, to feel the cold shiver again. It is not the work of a Nikolai. Raskolnikov shudders as though he had been stabbed, and asks, who then is the murderer? Porfiry says that Raskolnikov misunderstood him, and says, this time with a different meaning suggested, that he came here to deal openly with him. Raskolnikov says like a frightened child that he is not the murderer, and Porfiry whispers to him sternly, No, it was you, Rodion Romanovich, and no one else. Both are silent for ten minutes. Then Raskolnikov looks at him scornfully and accuses him again of being at his old tricks. Porfiry tells him to stop that, saying whether or not Raskolnikov confesses, he is convinced. Raskolnikov asks why, if he is convinced, he doesn't arrest him. He says, first, that he doesn't wish to put Raskolnikov in safety. Second, that the evidence he has will not hold up. And third, that though he has come to inform Raskolnikov that he will put him in prison, it will not be to his advantage to do so. He says that he likes Raskolnikov and that he has come to him with a direct and open proposition, that he should confess. He assures Raskolnikov that he has proof sent to him by Providence, but that it would be better for them both if Raskolnikov surrendered. Better for Raskolnikov, because it will lessen his sentence, particularly if Porfiry helps to make it appear that the crime is an aberration, which he promises to do. Raskolnikov says he doesn't care if the sentence is lessened, and Porfiry admits that that is just what he feared. He pleads with Raskolnikov not to disdain life, and says that a great deal of it still lies before him. He tells Raskolnikov that his theory broke down, and that it was base, but not hopelessly so. He says that he sees Raskolnikov as the sort of man, quote, who would stand and smile at their torturer while he cuts their entrails out, if only they have found faith or God, unquote. He urges him to suffer, saying the flood will bear him to the bank and set him on his feet again. He says not to fear the expiation and to fulfill the demands of justice. What he needs is fresh air, fresh air. 
Raskolnikov starts at the words he had heard on the lips of Svidrigailov. Raskolnikov asks Porfiry what kind of prophet he is to proclaim these words of wisdom, and Porfiry says he is a man with nothing to hope for, that is all. But life is waiting for Raskolnikov. Seeing Raskolnikov smile, he concludes that Raskolnikov believes him to be trying his old tricks again. He laughs, saying perhaps he is, and perhaps Raskolnikov ought not to believe his word. He offers Raskolnikov time to think it over, saying he will arrest him in a day or two. Raskolnikov asks what will happen if he runs away, but Porfiry is certain he won't. He can't get on without them. And if he is put in prison, he will confess, perhaps to his own surprise. He will take his suffering. Raskolnikov gets up to go out, and as he leaves, he tells Porfiry not to take anything he said as a confession. He has admitted nothing. Porfiry says he understands. Dropping his voice, he adds that he has one request to make of Raskolnikov. If he takes it into his head to end the business by laying hands on himself, to please leave a precise note and to mention the stone. He wishes Raskolnikov good thoughts and sound decisions, and goes out. When he is out of sight, Raskolnikov, too, hurries out of the room. He hurries to Svidrigailov's, not knowing what he hoped for, but feeling that the time had come. On the way, he ponders and worries over the question of whether Svidrigailov had been to see Porfiry, and decides that he hadn't, but he still could. Still, he feels only a vague anxiety over his future, but suffers the torment of a much greater present anxiety that involves an immense moral fatigue. He isn't even sure it was worth wasting time on Svidrigailov, and yet he goes on, whether from destiny, fatigue, or despair. He thinks of going to Sonia, but she stands before him as an irrevocable sentence, a choice he must make and he doesn't feel equal to seeing her. He goes to Svidrigailov, wondering what he could have in common with this depraved, malignant man. Another thought moves him to a gloomy rage. He fears that if Svidrigailov does know his secret, he might use it as a weapon against Dunya. That would transform everything. He thinks to himself that if Svidrigailov is intriguing against Dunya, he will kill him. He finds himself near the hay market, outside a tavern, and wonders why he had come to this spot. Suddenly, at one of the tavern windows, he sees Svidrigailov, who is silently watching him and tries to slip away unobserved. Raskolnikov pretends he did not see him. When both men become aware that the other is trying to hide from him, Svidrigailov breaks into a loud laugh and calls to Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov finds him in a back room, a glass half full of champagne before him, being sung to by a red-cheeked eighteen-year-old girl. At Raskolnikov's entrance, Svidrigailov gives the girl a glass of champagne and a yellow note, and sends her away. She kisses his hand as she leaves. Svidrigailov seems at home in this dirty, wretched tavern, as if he has spent whole days here. 
Raskolnikov says it is strange. He was going to see Svidrigailov, but he has no idea what brought him here. Svidrigailov says it is no miracle. Over the last few days, when Raskolnikov was asleep, he had told him the way and said he could find him there. Raskolnikov says he does not remember, and Svidrigailov believes him, especially since he has seen Raskolnikov several times walk out of his house, seeing nothing, talking to himself, and even standing in the middle of the road. Raskolnikov asks Svidrigailov why, if he invited him here, he hid from him, and Svidrigailov asks why, when he came to Raskolnikov's apartment, he pretended to be asleep. Both men claim they have their reasons. Raskolnikov studies Svidrigailov's face. He then declares with nervous impatience that he isn't afraid of Svidrigailov, since he doesn't care about himself, and further, that if Svidrigailov keeps up his former intentions with Dunya, he will kill him. He tells Svidrigailov to come quickly to whatever it was he wanted to talk about. Svidrigailov says that he merely wanted to observe him as an interesting subject, to hear something new, since his amusements are barren. Raskolnikov asks again what he is and why he has come there. He says he is a gentleman who served in the cavalry, knocked about in Petersburg, and then married Marfa Petrovna. Now that she is dead, he has come to Petersburg for the women. When Raskolnikov scorns him for his vice, he asserts that in this vice there is at least something lasting and founded in nature that gives him an occupation. And if he hadn't this one, he would be so bored he would shoot himself. When Raskolnikov asks whether he could shoot himself, he tells him, with a tone that has changed to disgust, not to speak of it. Svidrigailov announces that he can't stay long, since he must make his way to a scheduled engagement. When Raskolnikov asks if the engagement is with a woman, questioning him as to how such hideousness does not affect him, Svidrigailov mocks him as some sort of Schiller or idealist. Raskolnikov gets up to go, feeling that Svidrigailov is the most worthless scoundrel on the face of the earth but Svidrigailov begs him to stay, saying that he will tell Raskolnikov a story about the time a woman tried to save him.